the way big tech want us to think about this is are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech they want us to always think about it. is tech good or is it bad that's not the question as i learned the question is more what tech working in whose interests right so i spent all that i know it sounds a bit weird so i'll just explain how i learned this which is that i spent a lot of time in silicon valley interviewing people who designed key aspects of the world in which we now live and it was striking how guilty they feel yeah i give you examples guy called dr james williams a wonderful person who used to work at the heart of google one day he was speaking at a tech conference in silicon valley where the audience were the people who designed literally the stuff your kids use and he said to them if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating please put up your hand and nobody put up their hand Hello and welcome to the Happy Prayer Podcast. We're delighted to have you here. We genuinely are. We talk about all things health, happiness, meaning, and really what gives purpose in life. We talk with tons of different guests. We've done more than 100 episodes and they cover all aspects from health to food, to nutrition, to sleep, to well-being. To sex. Yeah, really, we cover it all. And we're really delighted to have you here today. It's a real honour to have you. I'm Steve. And I'm Dave. And I'm Sarah. And this is Ralph. Yeah. Uh, and Steve and me are identical twins. We've been in this space for nearly 20 years in terms of health and wellness. And we started the Happy Pair 18 years ago and we're delighted to have you. So you're an authority on it all. I don't know if I'd say that. I'd just say we're experienced in this space. Definitely uh, I would know I would call you an authority. I genuinely would. I oh, think so. Um, so you remember the other day I was telling you about uh, me ripping off your podcast club and doing yeah, it myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd go? Right. So it's this happening for tomorrow. Club. Okay, for anyone who hasn't listened, so Sarah... We had a podcast club, which was all about, you listen to podcasts. It was like a modern day version of a book club. Yeah. And now I'm doing one. And my question around it, so I've picked a podcast. I won't tell you the podcast, what it is, because I want you to listen to our podcast and not this person's podcast. But anyway, do you believe in luck? Absolutely. You do believe I, in luck? I, I always loved that expression. Gary Player was a famous golfer from South Africa. And he, I, I loved his quote that the more I practice, the luckier I just keep getting. And I think there obviously there is luck outside, but you can stack the deck more in your favor by showing up, by practicing, by doing the work, I believe. And I, I would even go more than that. I would think the more your attitude, the more you're grateful and open to life and present, the luckier you're going to be, because the more you'll be aware of the opportunities. When others are too busy, you know, focused on the problems and the issues, they might not necessarily see that there's a a golden penny on the ground or whatever that might be, you know, metaphorical look. But I think it comes down to your attitude. I think your attitude greatly dictates how lucky you are or not. Because the Buddha would say there's no such thing as luck if you're into Buddhism now. Yeah, well, it's like it depends on if you're a complete practical human or if you're someone that believes in fairies and energy and all that kind of stuff. So, Well, I'd say the Buddha would probably yeah, would be in an so. energetic sense. Yeah. Well, what do you think of this line? Okay, so... What they do you did, but no, that can't be proved that Bubba, Bubba, the Buddha didn't believe in luck. Cause well, he's, uh, he, apparently the Guatemala Buddha said, I don't believe in uh, luck. But what do you think of this statement? Okay, so they did a study... What's, what's your thoughts on luck? I'll tell you now in a okay. second. So they did, a, and I'm more interested in both of you for the moment. Thank you very much. Um, so they did a study on 10,000 millionaires. Um, what percentage of these millionaires do you think inherited any money versus had, had no money to start off with? 5% inherited the money and 95% didn't. I'd say 20 inherited, 80% didn't. God, you're on it, 21%. Yeah. So what, what, like, when you think of that in terms of luck, it's like... Well, you I also, like, I studied entrepreneurship and typically people who don't have want it. And those, like, as in, if you... Uh, the reason why I, I thought that those who didn't inherit would 
would were more likely to be the majority because when you don't have, you're more motivated to have. Yeah. And those who have, you're, you know, you might kind of comfortable. There's less of a motivation. Uh, your man, um, you know, who wrote, what's his name? At- Atomic Habits. James, J- James Clear. Clear. Yeah. He said that um, luck uh, is present in absolute, but not in the relative sense. So like an example of luck would be in the absolute sense is the ovarian lottery. You know, you're, you're, that's lucky. You're just born to the right place, right time, right family, whatever it is. But otherwise, as to what you're saying, it's like it's all about hard work. You know, there's no real well, luck. Well, luck. I think there's an aspect to hard work. Like there is obviously luck, you know, like Rick Rubin, the famous um, producer, music producer, he always says, well, you've got to show up. And therefore, when you show up, like, you know, genius will show up too. But unless you're ready at the, with your guitar or whatever, at the ready, you know, you're not going to be there to capitalise on this great inspiration when it shows up. And I think it's the same way in terms of luck, People might use a different word for luck or inspiration Mm. or presence or opportunity. And I think you can insert those other words for the same thing of kind of going, I think it comes down to presence. It comes down to your attitude. I think your attitude really, as I said before, your attitude, I think really dictates it because so many of us are stressed and overwhelmed in our heads. And if you're skipping down the, like when you're on holidays, you'll be so much likely to be luckier because you're probably more likely to be aware and more present. But also the attitude thing is like, do you have the kind of victim or victor mindset? Because if you're a victim mindset, you're you're kind of, uh, when bad things happen, you're always like, oh, it happened to me, it happened to me. You know, it's other people's fault, yada, yada. You're not someone to self-reflect being like, oh, I learned and I grew from that moment. Um, you know, whereas a victor mindset will look at something that like technically could be bad and say, no, I really, you know, that was a good thing that happened because it meant that this and this happened and I really learned in this moment. Uh, it's a tough one because loads of people like hate to hear these things yeah. and really hate it. And I guess there's no one answer with all this. However, in my limited experience, I know when I, like many people often say, people in London are so unfriendly. And when we go in with this kind of open puppy dog, wide eye, like delighted with life attitude and you get the train, the amount of conversations and the amount of amazing people you meet and the amount of like those poignant moments go, how the hell did that happen? That was just like a magical moment that I'll store in my little pocket forever. You know yeah. the way? Yeah. There's something called the locus of control, which is internal locus of control versus external locus of control. So internal locus is when you take credit for things or like you say, it's because of me. And external is when you say it's because of the outside world. And we more commonly, apparently, as a humanity, we have a habit of when things go really well, we say, oh, it's because of me. Uh, but when things go bad, we are more external focus. We said it's it's us, the outside world, it's because of that. Whereas, you know, th- the best way to look at all these things is somewhere in the middle where you, um, yeah, you, you can apply both. You're not too internal or external. You can mm. apply both to everything. So when something bad happens, you can also self-reflect and be like, oh, what is it in me that could have also contributed to this happening in the same way as when something good happens. You're not like, oh, it's only because I'm bloody brilliant. You're also aware of like, there's an element of luck, you know, that's the rain that helps us. So it's like somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I like that. Nice. Like even back in the Renaissance time, they used to, uh, genius was external. Like I was always struck by genius, not I am a genius. Yeah. modern day society has become a bit Individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so so back to today's podcast. We are interviewing a guest who we, well, back when we first started the podcast, he was one of our dream guests. He genuinely was. He's an international best-selling author. 
And he's an incredible storyteller. He's someone who deeply inspired us in terms of community and his research in terms of community and addiction. And I, I loved the whole fact that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah, he was the one that kind of got us really onto that. And he's he really is an incredible journalist, British journalist that was born in Scotland, um, international best-selling author, really incredibly incredible mind. And the topic of today's podcast, as you saw from the thumbnail, is about focus and he talks about our stolen focus. And this whole conversation is about what we can do as individuals, how we can empower ourselves, and what we need to do collectively as a society. I got loads in this. It's a really, really valuable conversation. And the beautiful thing about thing about Johan is, is that he's very vulnerable and honest about it. And he's not this, like, Buddha-like character that I have all the answers. He's like, well, this is what the research says. And yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, and buckle in if you are one that are sensitive towards, um, you know, slang or bad words. Johan does kind of litter them around the place. So if there's little kids in the car, maybe give this one a miss or put in your earbuds. Um, but just to give you a warning for, first up. But um, he's an absolute legend. He really is. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. And if you've got any takeaways or any feedback for us, our email is podcast at thehappypairs.ie as we'd love to hear from you. Um, thanks Mel enjoy just a quick ask for you if you do enjoy this podcast the best thing you can do to support it is to tell your friends and see if they listen to it too because the more it grows the more it gives us energy to keep doing it and to find great guests and to invest more time in it so if you want to help we'd be most grateful if you tell your friends or share it in any way great to have you and as we were saying we love your work we really really do so and the, the, the current topic of your of your focus is really just so timely and so you know, wonderful. And and even maybe you just jump right in it. Like even the topic stolen focus is like, who stole our focus? Like, because it seems like it's a bit like the obesogenic environment which we live in. You know, we are all the product of a food culture nowadays, which it's a lot easier to be obese. You know, if, like as Dan Butner, he's the guy who founded the Blue Zones. He says that if you're sick or if you're overweight, it's probably not your fault. Like it's probably not your fault because the environment does not make it easy for us to be healthy. And I think there's probably something similar happening with our focus and our attention. No, you're totally, it's very, that analogy came to me quite late in the research, but I think he's totally right. Because the reason I started working on the book is my own attention was just going into shit, right? It felt like with each year that passed, things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading books, you know, watching films, having proper long conversations, were just getting harder and harder. And I could see that this was happening to huge numbers of people around me. The average office worker now focuses on only one task for less than a minute. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. But weirdly, I didn't, I didn't, I just thought, well, there's something wrong with me, right? Even though I, I wasn't oblivious to the wider picture, I knew a bit about it. Um, I was just like, well, obviously the problem here is that I'm just lacking willpower, right? There's something wrong with me. Um, but like you say, I ended up, you know, partly because of an experience with a young person that I really love, and his attention, which I can talk about in a minute, but I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I ended up, um, you know, going from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus in the world. And what I learned from them is that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been massively rising in recent years. So if you're struggling to focus and pay attention, if your kids are struggling to focus and pay attention, it's not your fault. It's not their fault. There's nothing wrong with you or them. 
there's something wrong with our environment, right? That your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you. But once you understand what these 12 factors are that are, that are stealing our focus and attention, we can begin to get our minds back, I think. And I think the evidence shows that's very clear. And are, are most of the factors macro, like they're macro factors as in environmental factors rather than individualistic ones? Well, I suppose it's individualistic ones such as sleep and diet, nourishment and food and those type of things and exercise. But there's probably I, the macro ones. I guess, well, I would actually say that, that almost that division doesn't make sense, although I totally understand why you put it like that. But actually... Um, the macro changes and the micro changes, they tightly interact with each other. The way I started to think about it is sort of defense and offense, right? For all of these 12 factors that are screwing over our attention, there's sort of two ways we're going to respond. We've got to defend ourselves and our children as much as possible or go through loads of ways we can do that. And then we've got to go on offense against forces doing this to us. And it's sort of, so the way I don't think there's really a division there, the, the, the individual factors are collective and the collective factors are individual to some degree. Well, that's one of my favorite ones that really kind of lit a chord with me, which isn't necessarily associated with focus. Like when you think of focus, you think someone's sitting on their own, like with this kind of penetrating stare. Whereas the beauty of the word play, the importance of play, the importance of free play, the importance of mind wandering and how this contributes to having someone that has an ability to focus and play in particular with children really is has been eroded like I know myself growing up you know it, it only dawned on me recently uh, my son Ned who's now six he had a birthday party and it was in the garden and it was an old school one literally playing in the garden playing games and um, he climbed up a tree to go we kind of did this makeshift zip wire Total, May made it my daughter made it and Ned climbed up and did it and none of the other kids could climb the tree like they they had not climbed trees and it was quite frightening to me. he was like oh my god this is like right in front of my eyes. So I wonder if you could talk about the importance of play, especially how it's not only stolen focus, it's nearly in some regards stolen free play from childhood. Totally, I'm glad you've asked about that. It was, it was, it was, um, you know, it was worry about the young people in my life that made me decide to write the book. Because at the start, I thought, well, the explanation for why my attention is getting worse is obvious. I don't have enough willpower and someone invented the smartphone and fucked me over. Right, I thought that's what's going on here. And that's not a very interesting journey to go on. Right, it's my own flaws. Um, I later learned that both those stories are ridiculously oversimplified. I don't think I would have done it if it wasn't for this moment that I had. Um, so I've got a godson. I've just got lots of godsons, but I write about one in particular in the book where when he was nine, he developed this incredibly cute obsession with Elvis Presley. And it was adorable because he seemed to genuinely not know that impersonating Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last person to ever do a totally sincere version of jailhouse rock with all the hip jiggling and all that. And um, when I would tuck him into bed at night, it got me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. Obviously, I skipped over the bit where he shit himself to death on the toilet. And, and one night I was talking to him about it and I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived and um, I mentioned that people went there but you can go there to visit and he's hog faced it up and he said well you can go to visit Graceland and I was like yeah and he said Johan will you take me to Graceland one day and I said sure the way you do with nine year olds knowing like next week it'll be Legoland or whatever and he said no do you really swear one day you will take me to Graceland and I said I absolutely promise and I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until loads of things had gone really badly wrong. So when he, when he was 15, he, he dropped out of school. Um, 
by the time he was 19, he spent literally, the size of consideration is not, he spent literally all of his waking hours alternating between his iPad, his iPhone, his laptop. And it was like he was kind of whirring at the speed of WhatsApp, you know, like when nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa in London and um, all day I was just trying to get a conversation going with him, you know, and, and I just couldn't, right? I just couldn't. And he's really intelligent. And to be totally honest with you both, you know, I wasn't that much better, right? I was staring at my own devices. And I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before, and I said, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He's like, well, what are you talking about? And I reminded him, I said, this is no way to live. Let's let's break this numbing routine. Let's go on a road trip all over the South. But I thought about it. I said, but you've got to promise me one thing, which is that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day because there's no point going if you're just going to stare at your phone the whole time. And it took some time and he really thought about it because he wasn't happy with this way of being either. And he said, you know what, let's do it. And two or three weeks later, we took off from Heathrow to, um, to New Orleans where we went first. And a couple of weeks later, we got to Graceland, Gates of Graceland, right? And like in the song, and and, and then when you get there, this is this was before COVID, um, no one shows you around. What happens is they hand you an iPad when you arrive and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, you know, go left, go right. Every room you go in, it tells you a story about that room. And every room you go in on the iPad, there's like a, an image of the room you're in on the iPad in front of you. So we're kind of walking around and I'm getting a bit sort of tense because no one is looking at Graceland. Everyone is sort of just staring around looking at the iPad. I'm a bit pissed off, but I'm like, all right, whatever. And we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room. It had lots of fake plants in it. And there was this couple, they were about maybe 50 Canadian couple. And the man turned to his wife and said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed because I was kidding. And I turned to watch them and they were just swiping back and forward. And I, I leaned forward and I said, but, um, but sir, there's a not a fashion for the swiping you could do. It, it's called turning your head because you realize <laughs> you're literally in the jungle. You, you have to look on the internet. It's, it's literally all around you. And, and they looked to me like I was insane and backed out the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he literally couldn't stop, right? He, he couldn't stop. And I, I went up to him and did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to physically grab the phone from his hands and I, unsuccessfully. And I said to him, look, I know, I know you're afraid of missing out. This is guaranteeing that you'll miss out, right? You're not showing up at the events of your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. This is no way to live. And he stormed off. Um, and I walked around Memphis on my own that day. And I found him that night in the Heartbreak Hotel up the road where where we were staying. And he was sitting by the big uh, guitar show swimming pool looking at Snapchat. And I went up to him and I, I apologized for getting so angry. And he didn't look up from his phone, but he said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, okay, we we came away to get away from this problem of distraction, but there was nowhere to escape to because it was everywhere. It's the air we all breathe. And that's when I thought, shit, I need to figure out what's going on here. And of all the 12 courses, you've got to the one that I think 
Well, the solution was the one that I found most moving, actually. So um, one of the heroes of my book is a woman called Lenore Skenazi, who, um, I mean, Lenore's such a great person. You should have her on your podcast. Remind me, I'll introduce you to her. She's a wonderful person. So when Lenore was a kid in Chicago in the 1960s, um, every morning from when she was six years old, she left the house on her own and walked to school. It was about 15 minutes away. And she generally bumped into all the other six-year-olds because everyone walked to school on their own, right? And this is true all over the world. Mid-1960s, almost everyone, almost all school children everywhere in the world walked to school on their own. And when school ended, it gets a three o'clock or whatever, she and her friends would leave, they wander around the neighborhood, play games and go home when they were hungry. By the time Lenore was a mother, in she was living in Queens in New York by then, um, in the 90s, that, that had just ended, right? You were meant to deliver your children like a package to the school gates, watch while they went through the door, and you're meant to be standing there when school ended, right? Um, and in fact, by 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outside without an adult watching them, ever, right? And I think they got the ones that did it got like an average of 12 minutes a week. So basically, it completely ended in, in the US, and it's not quite as bad in Europe, but almost as bad in most European countries. Um, in, and Lenore became curious about whether this, this 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 extraordinary transformation, which is unprecedented in human history, uh, whether we'd lost something from it. And she started to learn about the science of it from people like my friends, Dr. Isabel Benkes, Oxford, Frister of the lots of people. Um, and, and, and what she learned is this childhood we've lost contains loads of things that are really important for children to be able to focus and pay attention fully. So one of them, it, to give you a real no shit Sherlock one is exercise. Children get to run around, develop more neurons, they can think more clearly. Evidence is overwhelming. Single best thing you could do for kids who can't focus is let them go and run around. We are the first human society ever to try to get children to sit still for eight hours a day. It's bonkers, right? But there's even more important elements. You think about the thing that you've gone to and it's so important, free play, right? So when children play freely without an adult standing over them going, no, Johnny, don't do that. Say sorry to Hannah. No, Hannah, don't do that. When they're just playing with each other, they develop all sorts of skills that are essential for attention. They learn how to take risks and cope with anxiety. You climb a tree. Is that what your kids couldn't do? What these kids that you were seeing couldn't do? You climb a tree, you get a bit too high, you shit yourself, but you don't die. You get down, you're all right. It's through facing these small challenges that you learn that you can cope with risk and uncertainty, right? If you don't get to do that, if you don't get these small challenges as a child, if you're constantly micromanaged, you're just anxious a lot more. And anxiety nukes uh, attention. There's lots of other factors as well. But the reason Lenore is the hero, one of the heroes of my book is not because she thought about this problem. It's easy to talk about problems, right? Lenore is the hero because she came up with a solution, which I would really recommend everyone watching who's got kids in their life um, go to her organization, letgrow.org. So at first, Lenore thought, well, the problem, the solution's obvious here. I'll just let my kids go out and play, you know? But she quickly discovered if you're the only parent doing it, your kids get scared, you look crazy, and actually often people call the police, right? In the US. So she developed this different tactic. She started to run this group called Let Grow. And what Let Grow do is they go to whole schools of whole communities and they persuade everyone to give their kids an increasing level of independence that builds up to playing outside again. 
because it's about persuading everyone to do it together. And of all the conversations I have with the book, I think the most moving was with a, a 40-year-old boy in Long Island. It's just a big, tall 14-year-old boy, taller than me. Until this program had begun nine months before, he had literally never played outside with an adult. And, and then this program began. And I said to him, oh, uh, what did you do? He said, oh, we went to the park and we played ball games. I thought, right, right. And then he leaned forward and said, it's just like a secret. He said in a low voice, he said, and then we started to go into the woods, even though we don't have any cell phone reception in the woods. I was like, oh, right. What'd you do in the woods? He said, we built a fort and now we're building a castle. I'm watching this boy talk about this. Maybe it sounds over the top, but it didn't seem it at the time with so many of the other kids. It was like watching them come to life, right? I thought about how many kids I know who never get to go and explore anything in the real world. No wonder they get obsessed with Fortnite. It's the only place they ever get to explore anything, right? Um, and Lenore was with me that day when I was talking to that boy. And um, when he left, she turned to me and she said, you know, think about human history. For all of human history, children, young people had to go out and explore. They had to map the territory. They had to figure out how things worked. And then in the space of one generation, one and a half maybe, we took all that away from them. But that boy, given a tiny little sliver of freedom, what did him and his friends do? They went and built a fort. Because this is so deep in human nature, right? So there's so many of the ways that we're living are just so contrary to our nature, right? And our needs. So yeah, one of the biggest things we need to do, go through lots of things we need to do to restore attention, is restore human childhood. We're not giving our kids a childhood that they're that our ancestors would even recognize as a human childhood. Amazing. I yeah. love it. I really, really do. I, I love your storytelling. You're great. Um, like even, even staying on this topic of the things that we can do to reclaim our attention, because it's not a big, you know, it's not a big sell to talk to people and say our attention's being, you know, taken away from us, because I think everyone listening can relate to it. And most people are going, oh, it's my smartphone or it's social media. Like these are the two biggest things that people will probably think of. But I'm just wondering, like, what are the other, like even just to focus on the things that we can do to reclaim our attention. Like obviously play is one of them. Another one which I became aware of during the week was boredom. I think boredom is something, and it probably tags on to play quite a bit, but that need for not filling every space with the phone or with the feed or with the, you know, actually experiencing going, wow, okay, what's it like it, just to it's be It's nearly human? the space for room for reflection. Like my wife's a clinical psychologist. She'll often say there's stimulus, there's response, there's reflection, and then you go through that cycle again. But you need that space for reflection if you're going to actually assimilate something and actually grow from experience. And so often in our, I guess, attention-based economy and our kind of constant hyper-stimulated, we seldom leave room for that space for reflection. You know, there were so many of the causes that really surprised me, but I had never even thought about them. So one that I think is very relevant to you guys is um, the way we eat is really affecting our focus of attention. There's this whole new movement I know you know about called nutritional psychiatry, which is looking at how the ways we eat affect the functioning of our brains, our moods, our mental states. So I interviewed both of these nutritional psychiatrists and did a lot of uh, digging into their, into their work. And, and they discovered, and I have to practice this by saying that like, I, I am, I literally had a KFC this morning. So like, I am not the exemplar of this, right? I'm not standing above anyone saying this is, I'm wagging my finger. In fact, one of the low, one of the low points of my life was um, Christmas Eve, two thousand and nine. I went to my local KFC near where I lived in Brick Lane at the time in East London, 
it was lunchtime. I sent my standard order, which was so disgusting that I, I won't even repeat it. I only go to KFC like once a month now. And um, I went in and I sent the order. And the guy behind the counter said, Oh, yeah, I'm really glad you're here. Wait a minute. I was like, All right. And he went off behind where they throw the chicken and everything. And he came back with the other members of staff who were on that day and a, and a fucking massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. <laughs> Everyone had written like personal little. And one of the reasons my heart sank is I thought, this isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most. How is this possible? <laughs> but so no superiority here. Oh, <laughs> quite the opposite. But, he, but the, the, so for me, traditional psychiatrist, I learned that but eating the way I do, but it did then. I'm, I'm a better now with the occasional relapse. Um, uh, affects our attention in three really significant ways. I mean, there's lots of ways, but I'll talk about just quickly three of this, all right? Um, so one of them is about, um, so imagine that you have the standard British American breakfast. You have, you know, buttered white bread toasted, right? Where you have sugary cereal. All that does is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly into your brain, right? Uh, it releases a lot of glucose specifically. And it feels great. You're like, whoa, I'm awake. I'm ready for the day. It's begun, right? But you release so much energy so fast that you'll get to your desk a couple of hours later, your kid will get to their school desk and you'll have a huge energy crash. And then you experience what's called brain fog, where you just can't think very clearly until you have another sugary carby treat then you've got another sheet of glucose that crashes again. The way Dale Pinnock, one of the leading nutritionists in Britain, put it to me, is the way we eat puts us on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes, energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day with these long, unnecessary patches of brain fog. Whereas if you had, say, um, porridge with blueberries, right? Um, the sorry, it's so alien to my nature that I literally forgot the word porridge there. But <laughs> if you have porridge with blueberries, um, that releases energy much more steadily. You won't have these huge crashes throughout the day. Think about one of the other causes. Um, for your brain to work fully, you need all sorts of nutrients in your diet. That uh, many of which we have that other people don't, but we're also chronically lacking some of them, like omega threes are found in fresh fish, sardines, um, which are really important for full brain function and retention. And our diets are just chronically lacking them. And it's, sadly, supplements just don't make up the difference. Your body doesn't metabolize uh, nutrients from supplements the way it does from actual food. So if it's not in your food diet, you're going to really struggle. Also, the third one, in a way, I thought was the most disturbing, which is not just that our food is lacking, our diets are lacking stuff we need to focus. Our diets often contain uh, chemicals and dyes that act on us like drugs. So there's a, um, was a really chilling study that was done in Southampton in Britain in 2009, where they got 193 kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water to drink. And the second group was given water um, laced with the kind of dyes that you get in all sorts of cold ready meals, things like M&Ms. And then they monitored the kids. And the kids who consume the dyes were significantly more likely to become manic, to run around too much, to not be able to pay attention. So you can see how these these factors, I had never thought about that, right? It seems, once you know it, it seems kind of, um, a guy called Dr. Drew Ramsey said to me, well, the brain is built out of foods, of course it affects it. 
but um, I never really thought about that. So there were so many of these factors. Some I'd thought about a little bit in the sort of common, common sense way. Some I hadn't thought about at all. Uh, and some I had thought about, like tech, but really in the wrong way, actually. Um, too simplistic. So yeah, it was, it was kind of in my mind a lot of the things that I learned. Amazing. Uh, maybe even you just touched on tech there because we, we should really get straight to it because obviously that's the one that most people and the one that you kind of said, it's it, it's social media, it's a smartphone, like these were your original thoughts on the causes of it. And is this 50% of the problem? Is it 70% of the problem? Like what is what are your thoughts now having been in this space for five years and have really gone deep into it? And you, I, I've heard you talk about it's the financial model around the social media economy that needs to change in order for our relationship with it to change? Yeah, I think the interesting thing is it's not tech per se. It's the way the tech is currently designed that's causing a large part of the problem. Um, the way big tech want us to think about this is are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? They want us to always think about it. Is tech good or is it bad? That's not the question, as I learned. The question is more what tech working in whose interests, right? So I spent, I know that sounds a bit weird, so I'll just explain how I learned this, which is that I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley interviewing people who designed key aspects of the world in which we now live. And it was striking how guilty they feel. Yeah, I give you an example of a guy called Dr. James Williams, a wonderful person who used to work at the heart of Google. One day he was speaking at a tech conference in Silicon Valley, where the audience were the people who designed literally the stuff your kids use. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand. And nobody put up their hand. And not long afterwards, he quit and became a really important thinker on this question. But people in Silicon Valley had to keep explaining it to me before I got it. Because in some ways, it feels almost too simple. Anyone watching, if you open TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram now, please don't. But if you did, those companies begin to make money out of you. And the first way is really obvious. You see advertising. Okay, we all know how that works. Second way is much more important. Everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are, right? Everything you've ever done. Let's say that you, you've ever indicated that you like, I don't know, Donald Trump, um, Bette Midler, and you told your mum in a private message you just bought some nappies. Okay, it's going to figure out if you like Donald Trump, you're probably right wing. If you like Bette Midler and you're a man, you're probably gay. No disrespect to any straight men like Bette Midler, I don't really believe you. Uh, <laughs> nappies, all right, you've got a baby, right? If you've been on these apps for any amount of time, they know tens of thousands of things like that about you. And they're learning it primarily for one reason. They're figuring out what will keep you scrolling. Because the longer you scroll, the more money they make. Every time you open the app and start to scroll, they begin to make money because you see ads. Every time your kid opens the app and stops to scroll, they begin to make money because your kid sees ads. And every time you or them close the app, that revenue stream disappears. So all of this genius in Silicon Valley, all of this, all of these algorithms, all of this AI, it is all geared towards one thing and one thing only when it comes to social media, figuring out how do we get you to open the app as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. That's it. Just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is how many times did you go to KFC this week and how big was the bucket you bought? All these companies care about, the whole machinery is designed to figure out how do we get you to keep scrolling? And they are 
unbelievably good at it, right? As my friend Tristana Harris, who used to work at the heart of Google, said, you know, you can try having self-control, but every time you do, there are 10,000 engineers at the other side of the screen figuring out how to undermine your self-control. So you see that puts us in a very different relationship with this technology, right? It is designed to hack and invade our attention. And I remember when people in Silicon Valley kept explaining this to me, and, I, and this is like a crude analogy, but it's the only one I could think of. They, I kept saying, well, it can't be that simple. And they kept looking at me as if I was like a maiden aunt in the 1850s who'd only just discovered the existence of fingering, right? They're like, how did you think it worked? What did you think people did, right? Because of course, this is what we do. This is, this is the whole point of what we do, right? This is how we make a living. Um, and, but... So first, when you learn that, it can be quite, um, and of course I've talked about the techniques they use, it can be quite bewildering. For a moment, we're like, oh shit, do we like live in the matrix then? Is it, are we just com completely overwhelmed by this? And actually, in a way, it left me much more optimistic than I was before. Because if it was just the existence of the technology that was screwing us over in this way, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to give up the technology, right? We're not going to give up our laptops and our phones. We're not going to all join the Amish nor do we want to, right? If it was just the tech, then we'd be screwed. But if most of the problem is coming not from the tech, but from the specific way the tech currently is designed, that's ultimately much more empowering because turns out the tech doesn't have to work this way. At the moment, we have tech that is working against us to harvest our attention so that a very small number of very rich people can become even richer. But we could have tech that works for us to enhance our attention. And there are all sorts of practical ways we could do that. And weirdly, there's a historical analogy that, re that you, you guys will probably, I think you're probably a little bit younger than me. I'm pretty sure you are. I just turned 44. How old are you? 43. Oh, oh, year, this year. Year. There you Same are. vintage, 79. Oh, right. There we go. Right. So, okay. Well, I feel slightly better now. You, you look better for it than I do. Though. <laughs> uh, um, you'll remember this, right? When we were kids, the only form of petrol you could buy in Ireland, Britain, all over the world was leaded petrol, right? I can remember my mum putting it in a, in a Rev Mini and it was discovered that exposure to lead is really bad for your brain and particularly fucks up children's ability to focus and pay attention. And if it's in petrol, obviously it's going out, it exhausts fumes, it's in the air, everyone was breathing in lead, right? Um, and it was having a terrible effect on children's brains. So what happened was a group of ordinary mums um, who called themselves housewives banded together and said, well, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these these for-profit companies to fuck up our kids' brains? I'm sure they were less sweary than me, but that's just what they said, right? And it's really important to notice what those mums didn't say. They didn't say, so guys, we're going to have to ban petrol now, right? Just like none of us is saying, let's get rid of all tech, right? What they said is, let's ban the specific element in the tech that's screwing up our kids' attention and move to a different model that won't screw up our kids' brains, right? And it followed the classic pattern these mums, they fought like hell for their kids. And it followed the pattern of like all political struggles that was described by Gandhi. First they ignored them, then they fought them. Sorry, first they ignored them, then they laughed at them, then they fought them, then they won. Everyone watching knows there's no more loaded pain anywhere. As a result, the Centre for Disease Control has calculated the average child in Ireland, Britain, all over the world is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned leaded petrol, right? And to me, that's a really important example. You identify the specific thing in the environment that's harming kids' attention, 
or and indeed everyone's attention and you get an ambient environment and you replace it with something that does the same job but doesn't have that toxic effect now we can do that with tech i can talk about how but it requires in the specific way we can do it the technology exists today to have these apps designed in a way that helps and aids our attention instead of hacks and undermines it but we have to deal with that that the equivalent of the lead in the lead paint which is their business model as long as the longer we scroll the more money they make they're going to carry on designing very effective ways to keep us scrolling but we don't have to tolerate that right just like with as far as the lead industry screwing with us we don't have to tolerate these companies screwing with us we could fix it if we want to and is it changing do you see the likes of other examples of obviously when you're talking about scrolling you're talking about your tiktoks and your instagrams and all these type of free social media platforms that are you know and I guess, you know, you even write that if you are, if something is free, the probability is you are the product, you know, that's, or you are the, yeah, you are the product. Um, but just wonder, do, do you have any other examples of things which are changing or signs or glimmers of hope of, of companies in the same niche that are just doing it differently and are forming different systems? Well, the important thing to understand is these companies will never sort this out themselves any more than the lead industry was going to go, and you know what, guys, we've made enough money. Let's stop poisoning kids' brains, right? It's not how it works. They have to be made to do it. In the same way, these companies have to be made to do this. And the way I think of it is for all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stonewall Focus that are harming our attention, there's sort of two levels of which we've got to deal with them. I think of them as defense and offense, right? Like I think I'm alluding yeah. to them. Um, so there are loads of things that we can do at an individual level to protect ourselves and our children as much as we can. So I'll give you an example of one, if that's something I can show it to you. Here it is. So I have here a case study. I should totally have bought shares in this company before my book came out because their sales have massively gone up since I started talking about it. Um, so a case safe is a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, wherever my phone is, um, you put on the lid, you turn this dial at the top, push the button, and it locks your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day, right? Um, Do you I use it much? I won't sit down and watch a film with my partner unless we imprison our phones in the phone jail or have my friends around for dinner unless we imprison our phone and use it three hours a day to write. And when I'm trying to persuade people to join me in it, I often say, you know, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of required a lot of sustained focus and attention. When your ability to focus and pay attention breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals is really diminished. Your ability to solve your problems is really diminished. You feel worse about yourself because you actually are less competent. But when you start to get your attention back, you realize that attention is your superpower, right? And um, it's very infectious. When you start to get your attention back, you want more of it. And um, so, yeah, in terms of defense, I go through loads of things like that that we can do. But I want to be really honest with people because I don't think most books about tech, about attention are leveling with people. I'm passionately in favor of these individual changes that'll make a really big difference on your, in your life. On their own, they're not going to solve this problem for us, although they're important. Because the way I think of it is, at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, you know what, mate? Um, you should learn to meditate, then you wouldn't be scratching all the time. <laughs> you want to go, screw you, I'll learn to meditate. That's really valuable. But you need to stop pouring this damn inching powder on me, right? So we need to actually take on the forces that are doing this. 
And also, I think that's very empowering. And it can sound very fancy, but I went to places that have actually done that. From France to New Zealand, I can talk about that. But if we're always focused on the individual solutions, hugely valuable though they are, um, and passionate as I am about them, it leaves us locked in this self-blame, failure, I need to have more willpower way of thinking. What you, this didn't happen because we all lacked willpower, right? This happened because these really big changes took place um, in the way we live. But none of us really, you didn't choose that, I didn't choose that, your kids didn't choose that. These were big changes that happened to us um, that were not the result of any individual's choice and often, you know, against individuals will in some cases. So yeah, I think, I think we need to really reframe how we think about this while also pursuing all the solutions that we possibly can across the board, individual and collective. And as part of the solution with the likes of social media apps, is it that people subscribe to them and they pay a small amount so that we move from being the product to the product being our subscription? Is so that a possible thing to explore or is that? Yeah, so it's basically three possible models for how you fund social media. The model we have at the moment, the kind of fancy term for it is surveillance capitalism, a term that was thought of by a brilliant person at Harvard called Professor Shoshana Zubal. Surveillance capitalism is you seem to get the product free, but in return, they secretly track and surveil you in order to uh, figure out the weaknesses in your attention and sell your attention to the highest bidder through advertising, right? That's the current model we have. So you get it free in inverted commas, but the price you pay is it fucks your attention, it makes you angry. It makes your kids miserable. We can go down the list if you want. That's model one. So model one is you don't pay, but they track and surveil you and fuck with you. Model two, and by the way, everyone watching will have had experience of these three models, pretty much everyone. The second model is, like you say, subscription. So think about Netflix, HBO. We all know how this works. You pay a certain amount. In return, you get access you know, maybe pay a small amount every month. The key thing is, with say subscription as opposed to surveillance capitalism, all the incentives are then different, right? At the moment, if I'm running Instagram, TikTok, whatever, I'm constantly figuring out how do I hack your attention and keep you scrolling, right? Because you're not my customer. You're the product I sell to my real customer with the advertisers who I want you to see as much of their ads as possible, right? TikTok and Facebook have a customer service line. You can't call it, right? You're not the customer. The advertisers <laughs> call it, right? Um, so if we move to subscription, suddenly you are the customer. Suddenly they're not going, how do we hack Bob in order to keep him scrolling? Something like, oh, what does Bob want in life? Turns out Bob feels good when he meets his friends offline instead of doom scrolling. Okay, let's design the app to tell him when his friends are nearby and want to meet up for a pint. Easy to do that. Technology exists. My friends in Silicon Valley could do it tomorrow. Uh, turns out people feel good when they can pay attention. Okay, let's design the app to heal their attention, not hack their attention. These things are very easy to do, right? So that's, that's model two. Model three, everyone watching will have experience of as well. Think about, um, it, it's sort of the fancy term for it is public ownership, independent of government. So think about the sewers, right? Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets, we got cholera, it was terrible. Uh, so we all pay to build and maintain the sewers and we all own the sewers together. You guys own the sewers in your part of Ireland. I own the sewers in London with all the other people who live in London, right? It's commonly owned and commonly maintained through taxes. It might be that like we want to own 
the sewer pipes together because we don't want to get cholera. We might want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention, for our politics, for reasons I can talk nice about. Nice analogy. It's right. And so you might want to have a model where we own the government, uh, governments own these things. Now, you obviously want to have it independent of government because you can imagine how terrible it would have been if Donald Trump had owned, been able to control Facebook or whatever. So a good model is, it's not a perfect model, but a good model is the BBC, where every British person who has a television pays a certain amount. In return, the BBC works for us. We independently fund it and it works for us. And it's not perfect, but it is the most trusted news organization in the entire world, right? So um, I think you, you might want a model like the BBC, or there might be some fourth model we haven't thought of yet. If you don't change the incentives, you don't change the outcomes, right? And the way I think of it is we're sort of in a race. If you think about all of these 12 factors that I write about in Stone Focus that are harming our attention, almost all of them are poised to become more powerful, right? If we don't act. Paul Graham, who's one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, says the world is on course to be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40. And then think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook. Can now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse, right? Um, so that's one side of the race, all these factors. The other side of the race, I would argue there's got to be a movement of all of us saying, hell no, you don't get to do that to me. You don't get to do that to my brain. You don't get to do that to my children. That is not a good life. We of course choose a life with lots of technology, but we choose a life with technology that works for us, not against us. And we choose a life where we have the option of depth, where we can think deeply, where our children can play outside, where we can read books. Now, if we want that future, we can get it, right? James Williams, who I mentioned before, the guy who worked at the heart of Google, he said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone said, guys, should we put a handle on this axe? The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can put this stuff right if we want to, but they won't put it right for us. We've got to organize together and demand for it to work for us, not against us. There's no sign of that, though. I don't see any sign, really. You know, I don't see any collective sign. Like, I see individuals, people going, right, I'm doing digital detoxes, or I am i don't use my phone on a Sunday, or there's an OTech Tuesday evening, or whatever it might be. People have lots of different individualistic strategies. But I don't necessarily, and maybe I just haven't seen it, but I don't see any mass macro kind of organisation. I'm sure there is, but it doesn't seem like it's really gathering force, because, you know... I'm not saying I'm the font of knowledge in any sense, but I just, as, as a normal citizen, I haven't seen any signs of it. So I think, and there's some really encouraging signs, and obviously, as you know, I end the book with lots of organisations that are fighting, but I think there's a true thing what you're saying, which is, I think where we are is where my grandmothers were when they were the age I am now when it comes to feminism, right? So um, I'm 44, when my grandmothers are 44, one of them was a, uh, a, a Swiss peasant woman living in a wooden hut on the side of a mountain. And the other was a working class Scottish woman uh, whose job was to clean toilets in a poor part of Scotland. And I really loved my grandmothers. They were incredible women and I knew them very well. And I think about their lives when I was, their lives when, when they were the age I am now, right? So when they were 44, Neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts in their own name because they were women, married women. You had to have a bank account in your husband's name. Um, 
my Swiss grandmother wasn't allowed to work outside the house without the written permission of her husband. It was legal for their husbands to rape them, as it was legal everywhere in the world for a man to rape his wife. And my Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote. And my grandmother's lives were totally disfigured by the shit way women were treated, right? They hated the fact their brothers got to go to school longer than them. It, you know, my grand, one of my Swiss grandmothers, she loved to paint and draw. And they just told her to shut the fuck up and get into the kitchen when she painted and drew, right? Um, so they hated it. But they had no sense that this was something that could be different, right? They hated it, but they were like, well, look, this is how it's always been for women for thousands of years. This is frustrating. It's horrible. It deadens our lives. But I guess that's just the way of the world, right? And then a, genera a generation after them, lots of women organized when there were women organizing at the same time as when my grandmother was 44, but they didn't know them. The generation after that, you had lots of women who said, right, not only is this shit, but it doesn't have to be this way, right? Actually, this is just an artificial construct and we could completely change how we live if we wanted to, right? And those women obviously fought, and some sympathetic men, fought, you know, every level in their families, in their workplaces, in their schools, at the national level, right? And there's still a long way to go, but if I think about my niece who really looks like one of my grandmothers and is now 18. I think about the gap between my grandmother's lives and my niece's life. It's almost unthinkable, right? My niece loves to paint and draw. We didn't tell her to shut the fuck up and get in the kitchen. We started Googling art schools, right? Um, I mean, today, even the craziest misogynist wouldn't say, wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to them to say, my, grub, my niece shouldn't be allowed to have a bank account or it should be legal to rape her or shouldn't be allowed to vote. You regard someone as literally mad if they said that, right? Um, and I think where we are with focus is a bit like that, right? Almost everyone can feel that something bad is happening to their attention and focus. They are very worried for their children. They're worried for themselves, but we're just a bit like, oh, well, this is just how the world has changed, isn't it? There's nothing we can do about it. I suppose we've just got to adjust. Just like my grandmother's thought, well, this is shit, but I'll just find a way to get through it. Right? So I think what we need is a kind of beat where we kind of go, it doesn't have to be this way. This is being done to you by arbitrary social forces that we can take on a change. In addition to obviously saying we've got to protect ourselves as individuals as much as possible. And a lot of the book is about that. Does that ring true to you? Tell me if it doesn't. I'm curious. About it. Yeah, no, it does. And then even when you're saying it, I think of like, you know, it's ultimately these it, the social media is, is a huge catalyst to it alongside the smartphones. And these are the biggest corporations of our generation, really you know, that have just erupted mm. over 20 years and they've kind of catalyzed, you know, transformed our attention as much as many other aspects of life. Well, I think it's about a shift of psychology towards them as well, where you sort of realize as we, we tend to pick ourselves as powerless in the face of these forces, right? We're not, I went to places that begun to regulate these things, but I think to get to that point where we're fighting for regulation, you have to sort of go, you know, we're not, medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg and King Musk for a few little crumbs of attention from their table, right? We're the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds. You know, we, we've got to take them back. So we, we need to see this as a, a, not like we're the broken, feeble people who, you know, there's something wrong with you. You'll, you know, pull yourself together. You'd be like, no, we've been violated, right? We, our children have been violated by these forces that, from the food industry, 
to the way our schools work, uh, which is not the fault of teachers at all, they resisted these things, to the way our employment works at the moment, all sorts of these things. But think about, give you an example of one, right? So in, in, in France in 2018, they were having a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. <laughs> <laughs> and the French government, under pressure from labor unions, set up an inquiry to figure out, why is everyone so burned out all the time? And they discovered it was partly due to a massive change. 40% of French workers thought they could never stop checking their phone or email the whole time they were away, because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night, and if you didn't answer, you'd be in trouble, right? Now, think about, think about the change from our childhood. Were your mum and dad ever contacted by their boss after they came home from the end of work? I don't remember my parents ever having to... Like, when you finished work, you finished work, right? The only people who were on call when we were children were the Prime Minister and doctors. And even doctors weren't on call all the time, right? So we've gone from almost no one being on call to almost half the economy being permanently on call. Um, and it means that you can't unwind. You can't decompress. If you're constantly half the, a bit of your brain is going, oh shit, what work crap. If we're basically always, almost at work, you know, I can give those people all the lovely advice in the world about buy a case and you can go through the other trial factors that are harming our attention. You know, if they can't do it, they can't do it, right? So that's why the French government came up with it. Again, under pressure from labians, it would never have happened if there hadn't been organized workers in France. Came up with a really good partial solution to this. They changed the law to introduce something called the right to disconnect. And it's very simple. Um, everyone who's got, every worker in France has to have in their work contract, their work hours clearly laid out. And when your work hours are over, you don't have to look at your phone or check your email. When I was in Paris, Renter Kill, the pest control company, was fined 70,000 euros for complaining that one of their workers didn't check his email an hour after he left work, right? So you can see how that's a big collective change. There's been this change in technology and it's led to this effect where our employers invade our time in a way that would have been unthinkable before, right? Um, and so you have to have a collective response to that. There'll be some people watching and listening who are really powerful in their workplace. If you go to their boss and go, I'm not checking my email after five o'clock anymore, but I doubt there's many people watching and listening like that. Most people, we have to do that together, right? If we all do it together, then we can force this change and it makes everyone's life better, including by the way, the employers, their lives are better. It's A, they also are knackered. B, Having a knackered, exhausted workforce isn't good even in narrow economic terms, right? So you can see how these changes uh, are things we, we can fight for, but we, it requires us to get out of this defensive crouch. Like, oh, what's wrong with me? If you can't check your email every fucking hour of the day, there's nothing wrong with you. You're a healthy human being who doesn't want to be looking at your email every hour of the day, right? So we've got to get out of this defensive crouch. I think there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. There's something wrong with these changes, but we can reverse these changes or tame them. Mm. What, what about you? You said a term at the very start when we were chatting to you, you said about presence and you, you just kind of, you just danced over it a couple of times and presence to me seems kind of interlinked with focus, but it's got a more kind of spiritual, you know, context to it or whatever. And presence ultimately is that capacity to be in the moment and, you know, be aware of your senses and, you know, your hearing and all those various aspects. Like what, what is your difference between presence and focus? And is it just different words for the same thing? Well, it's a really interesting question. Um, well, 
it makes me think about, I went to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a really amazing man called Professor Earl Miller, who's at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You could only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It's, it's not going to change on any time scale we're going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen for a kind of mass delusion when it comes to presence. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. The rest of us are not far behind them. So scientists like Professor Miller, scientists all over the world, they get people into labs, younger people, older people, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time and they monitor them. What they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you, you juggle very quickly between tasks. You're like, wait, what did Bob just ask me? What is this message on WhatsApp? What is this message on Facebook? What does it say just happened on the TV over there? Wait, Bob, what were you saying again? So we're constantly juggling. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You make more mistakes. You remember less of what you do. You're much less creative when you're not present with one thing. And, and this is a really big effect. I mean, I'll give you an example of a small study that's backed by a wider body of evidence. Um, Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, they got a scientist in to study their workers and he split them into two groups. And the first group, he just said to them, get on with your task, whatever it is, you're not going to be interrupted. Just do what you've got to do. So be present with your one task. Second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, but at the same time, go while to a heavy load of the email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live not being fully present with one thing. And at the end of it, he tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had to give you sense of how big that is. If we were all sitting down together now and smoking a fat explanation, getting stoned, our IQs would go down by five points. So being chronically interrupted in the way lots of us are is twice as bad for your intelligence in the short term as getting stoned, right? You'd be better off sitting at your desk, smoking a split for doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk, not smoking a spliff, but being constantly interrupted. Don't want to give everyone the wrong idea. Obviously, you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being interrupted. But you can see this is why Professor Miller says we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being constantly interrupted. If we think about presence, right? What does it mean for me to be present with you and you to be present with me? It means I'm giving you my full attention or as much of my attention as I can, right? and you're giving me your attention. We could all feel that lack of presence, right? Go into any restaurant tonight, sit there, and look for a group where no one's looking at their phone. It's it's hard to find them. I, I look out for them. The hardest ones are seeing people with small children who don't look at their kids because they're on their tech and I understand how difficult being a parent is, but it's, you know, so that you can see there's been a huge collapse in presence, right? Think about my godson in, 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 in Graceland. He couldn't, he couldn't be fully present with any one thing. And he could feel that was diminishing him. I could feel that was diminishing him. So yeah, the, the collapse of presence is, um, 
almost the same as the kind of collapse in focus. They're both intrinsically linked. They're both kind of well, I think two facets are. of the same same head, if you would. The same head has two sides to it, or the same coin yeah, has two yeah. sides. To it. Uh, even just moving the conversation on, I, I, I was thinking, so the book came out January 2022, and you probably researched it for kind of five years up to that. And since then, or you put since then, like it's changed. Like since you finished your research on it, maybe it was 2020 or whatever. And and I just wondered, since you've kind of done all your research and the book has been out, obviously the landscape has changed even more and gone probably even more severe or even more drastic. Since it came out and you've done, you've done all the press and you've done all the podcasts and you've done all the tour on it, what are the realisations that have come out? Like, you know, are there new realisations within your own journey upon it or new little fragments, which when you wrote the book, you know, they might have been little tiny little wisps, but they've now, you now realised they're a bigger, you know, there's a bigger problem there, a bigger issue there, or, you know, positive or negative. Are there any kind of thoughts there? Well, I mean, by far the dominant social media app now is TikTok. And TikTok makes Facebook look like a Henry James novel, right? I mean, it's like, it's, you know, so, and there are plenty of good things about TikTok, like there's plenty of good things about Facebook, but yeah, well, you've seen all the trends accelerate. In fact, Professor Gloria Mark, who's one of the done some of the best sort of on the ground research about what's happening to our attentions. We're talking recently about how, you know, it's just deteriorating even more quickly. So it makes the cause even more urgent, you know? Um, so I think the change is that, that, that it's getting worse. And it's been really interesting to me, like the last few weeks, um, lots of foreign language editions of the book are coming out in, you know, places like Spain and, and places that are really different, Croatia and, Mongolia and one of the things that's striking to me is all over the world people are just I'm speaking all over the world like I did in the research for the book obviously how strikingly similar the problems are everywhere because the underlying causes are so similar um, which in some ways is it might, might seem an odd thing to say but in some ways it's encouraging because if all the smoke alarms are going off it's hard for people to deny there's a fire right and the sheer breadth of the crisis means that the potential constituency for putting this right is basically everyone except Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And even they would be happier if we did this right. Um, you know, so I mean, they'd have less money, but they'd be happier. So, um, yeah, I, I just think that the urgency is, is, is great. And I think about like my friend, Tristan Harris, who, um, who worked at the heart of Google. He's such an amazing person. And, you know, has been at the forefront of warning about this. A lot of people have seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, where he's one of the central, the central person. I was speaking to him the other day, and I just thought, God, the, the burden that someone like him carries, you know, of, of having been at the heart of this machine, of seeing how it's deliberately assaulting our attention, and really trying to warn the world, and he's such a because he's, he's such a decent person, and he feels the weight of what he's doing. It's different for me. I'm a journalist, right? You know, a journalist. You write the best book you can, you warn people as best you can, and then you go on to the next thing. And I write a book about a series of crimes that have been happening in Las Vegas, and I've been in Vegas a lot last year, and I'm researching about that. You know, I'm in I'm in this different mode now. But then you kind of like, boy, for the people who are in this fight, you know. Um, so intimately, you know, or, or obviously I just get lots of emails and letters from people who, who 
whose children can't focus, who themselves can't focus, who are kind of someone came up to in the street a little while ago and said, oh, I saw an interview with you. Um, I'm really interested in your book about why people can't pay attention, but I don't have enough attention to read a book. Could you just tell me what it says? That's a good one. Okay, okay, final thing. Final no, thing no, I just maybe, wanted to... Maybe even just to, just to land it for people who are listening. Okay, okay, right. I understand. I am struggling with my focus. There are basic things. And beyond the obvious ones, sleep, which you go into, and you kind of talk about someone who gets 19 hours sleep typically is similar someone who's similar who's to being vaguely drunk or who's been awake 19 hours sorry and only had five hours sleep uh, diet, diet obviously to try to eat more whole plant foods or to eat more healthier foods is a hugely important manage your relationship with social media manage your relationship with screens try to have more free play for your children is vitally important and if you're young and you're restless I know I'm a restless beast and if I don't exercise I'm way more twitchy so obviously exercise is vital are there any other ones that we've missed that are kind of top level, low lying, or not top level, low lying fruit that some listen and go, yes, I can be offensive in my reclamation of my attention? Yeah, I would say by KSafe, download onto your laptop an app called Free and your phone an app called Freedom. You can sync them to both. So Freedom can cut you off either from specific websites. So if you can say, don't let me, I've got a friend who's addicted to Instagram, I've got another friend who's addicted to Pornhub, you know, you can just say, don't let me go onto these websites for the next hour, three hours, up to a whole day. And also on my phone, um, I'll show you. She said, so what am I left it? I'm but the I'm in my office, but um, uh, for my uh, on my phone, I just permanently have Twitter blocked because to me that's just a complete suck of energy. It renews every twenty four hours, so I just can never look at Twitter on my phone. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, so I'd say freedom and a case safe. Um, I think there's lots of things that I go through in the book about that, that we can do to protect ourselves, you know, um, and then, of course, lots of things that we can do to fight back as well. You don't want to be forever playing a defensive battle, especially if the other side is getting more and more powerful weapons and getting more and more sophisticated ways to manipulate us. But yeah, there's, there's so many things we can do. And weirdly, I actually left the book quite optimistic because there's some problems in the world that are just ineffable catastrophes, right? We'll all die. Everyone you love will die and we'll all be forgotten. But I can't do anything about that. There's nothing we can do about it, right? It's the reality of life. Um, and there are some problems that are preventable. And a lot of this is preventable. You know, actually, I started thinking this is just the way the world is. But actually, a lot, a lot of this doesn't have to be happening to us. And we can put it right. Um, but it requires us to understand what these 12 causes are. And, and to then, you know, really deal with those causes in our own lives and, and in our broader society. Very good. Final, final thing. Any things in your own personal life since, the, since you started this that you've, have you found your attention if you've managed to keep up these habits? Or uh, have you found that slowly over time your attention has been, you know, the way, unless you're intentional about these things, like you'll become the product of the current environment. And as we said, the very start, it's an attention-grabbing environment. How have you found in your own journey as a journalist who's aware of all these things, more so than anyone else, how have you been with it and with your own intentionality with it? Just funny, it reminds me of, um, I'm not as bad as Australia, but um, <laughs> earlier in research from the book, I went to interview this guy called Professor Rory Baumeister. He's a brilliant social scientist. He's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And he's like the leading expert of willpower in the whole world. He wrote a book called Willpower. If anyone who's watching you knows something called the Marshmallow Experiment, which is quite famous, he designed that. 
So go and see him and I'm like, so I, uh, I'm writing this book about why people can't pay attention. I'm really interested in what I could learn from you. And he said something like the exact words from the book. He said, so like, you know, it's interesting you say that because um, I just find I can't really pay attention anymore. I play Candy Crush a lot on my phone. I just sort of said that. Like, oh, fuck. If, what about it? Didn't you write a book called Willpower? Aren't you the leading expert on willpower in the fucking world? And he telling me you just play Candy Crush all the time. It was quite sobering. Um, so I'm not as bad as Rubamo said. <laughs> uh, I mean, he, he pays attention now other ways, I'm sure. Um, no, for me, well, it relates a lot to, it correlates a lot with one of the other causes which I haven't talked about, which is stress. So, um, this woman called Dr. Nadine Berg-Harris, completely amazing woman. She was until recently the Surgeon General of California, uh, the sort of senior medical figure in the state. Nadine did loads of research on effects of stress and trauma or the tension. She said to me, imagine one day you're walking down the street and out of the blue you were attacked by a bear and you survive. In the weeks and months that follow, you're going to find it much harder to like read a book or something because a big part of your brain is going to be just involuntarily scanning the horizon. Going like, well, something came out of the blue and attacked me. Shit, I need to see if anything else is going to come out of the blue and attack me, right? Okay, now imagine you're attacked by a bear again. It's a bit unlucky in the scenario, but imagine it. And you survive again. After that, a big part of your brain is going to be like, whoa, we don't know what's going on here. I need to be permanently scanning the horizon, right? So, you know, we evolved to be able to pay deep attention in situations of safety, right? You'd be a fool if you sat at the Battle of the Salt reading a novel, you're shot in the head, right? You will be able to pay attention best when you are most safe and when you are stressed and anxious, you'll find it harder. So for me, in the last year, I've found a lot of my capacity to focus and pay attention has fluctuated. Not so much according to things like social media, because I've become much better at that. But most of my stress, I had a quite challenging year last year. There was a suicide in my family. My book came out, which was, um, you know, it's inherently stressful, even though it's gone really well. There's it's just stress involved in that. Uh, I was traveling around a lot. Um, uh, it just various things happened. Uh, so I found that it, it, it really fluctuated according to my 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 stress levels uh so like at the moment for example um you know i've been doing a load of um, interviews and book promotion uh for i was in vegas and i had a uh very uh this book i'm writing about las vegas is um something i've been researching for 12 years and is uh 13 years now um and it's a subject that really, I'm not allowed to talk about it very much, but it's a subject that's really close to my heart and involved uh, the murder of someone I got to know very well. And um, there was a kind of breakthrough in December where someone I've been trying to get to talk to me for many, many years finally agreed to talk to me. And it was very uh, amazing and thrilling and stressful and quite emotionally distressing. And, um, and I came back and I've been doing all this promo and... Uh, it's been the anniversary of the death of my family. And so, you know, what I, what I very carefully do not do in my book and um, is sort of go, this kind of format of the self-help book, which goes, 
well, dear reader, I did it, and now you can too, right? And I'm always wary of those those things anyway, because it's usually a privileged person, you know. I just, yeah, I'm, it doesn't have no value, but I, I'm skeptical of it. Um, so I'm definitely better than I was before I learned all this stuff. I mean, all this knowledge has helped uh, massively, but sometimes it helps you to understand better why you're failing rather than put it right and sometimes it helps you to put it right um but it grew live in the same society as everyone else right so i'm subject to the same forces in the society it's, of course i can protect myself somewhat better but um so it's a mixed it's a mixed good mixed honest answer i appreciate. really appreciate your honesty that's great it's it's encouraging to hear like it's you know it's it <laughs> is actually encouraging to hear that rather than go oh, no i'm perfect i'm I'm, I have atomic focus, you know, or whatever it might be. Oh, fuck that. I, I don't believe the people who say, people who've written these books and go, oh, and now I am the paragon of virtue. But <laughs> <laughs> well, A, I don't believe it. I'll tell you what, though, it's a good discipline. If you have written a book about um, focus, um, <laughs> like yesterday I was sitting in a restaurant, my friend was late, and I had my phone and I had a book, and uh, someone had cut to me and said, oh, I, you know, I saw it in the studio or whatever. And I sat there and I thought, I'm going to look like a right twat now if I sit here just staring at my phone for the next half hour. Right, I'm going to read this book. You know, it's like, it's such a helpful discipline to be surrounded Social by accountability. Hold, <laughs> social accountability, holding yourself to higher yeah, standards. Yeah, maybe we all need to write a book on focus so that it holds accountable. <laughs> don't flood the market, I don't want that. <laughs> it's weird because it's funny, I don't know if I get recognised it's usually in slightly odd ways. And I, I was in taxi a while back. This taxi driver said to me, oh, I recognise you. And I said, I don't think you do. And he said, no, no, I recognise you. You're an actor, aren't you? I was like, no, I'm not an actor. And it's the whole, like, 45-minute journey trying to guess which actor I am. And he goes, I've got it. I know who you are. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, you're Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not Philip Seymour Hoffman for several reasons. I said that he's been dead for 10 years. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> you're grateful. You really are. Uh, really refreshing. Thanks a million. Yeah. Oh, I enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. No, thanks to you. It's happy pair P E A R and That's not happy P A I R, which is I maintain is what your logo looks like. Oh, those guys. Great fun. I'm you're really you're wonderful. Uh, I, I wish you all the joy in the world. Thanks, uh, thanks for so everything, much. genuinely. I hate it's just I'm gonna go and um, eat a grotesque amount of food now. Uh, so, <laughs> you're a star thank, thank, thank you, you man. mind yourself Thanks, bye, bye all the bye best bye bye. Bye bye. cheers bye 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 big takeaways there I think was that there's an offence and a defence in terms of our attention and certainly I've been aware of this for the last number of years and I've tried to put it in practice in terms of you know I turn off all notifications on my phone and I definitely find it helps and uh, there's a few little tactics which I do which definitely do help on a defensive point of view Offense, we got to take on the machine. Yeah, offense sounds like it's a collective issue. So, um, but I think it was so refreshing there to hear that here's Johan, who's just done so much research on it and he's struggles with it just like everyone else. So I guess there's all these tactics to apply, but just to be aware that don't beat yourself up with it. And it's little steps that need to consistently be applied. And if they aren't applied, the machine will probably grab your attention again, little by little. I really appreciated the last one as well around stress and how stress is something that is often just taken for granted and how it has such an impact on our ability to focus. Yeah, but I guess the power does come down to each one of us to have a certain amount of agency in this. And as he talked about sleep, he talked about food, 
talked about, you know, willpower and obviously the likes of case safes and things like this. Talked about uh, if you have any children and want to help them focus better, importance of exercise and importance of free play for their ability to be able to focus. But can totally empathise with any parents out there where fathers separately of five kids between us. Wee. And uh, yeah, it's such a challenging thing with par- as a parent kind of going, well, how do we navigate this with our children? And certainly uh, my daughter's 12 now, my eldest, and she's got a a dumb phone like not a smartphone but I consistently say to her um, no I'm not getting your phone till you're 18 you can buy yourself a phone when you're 18 but then tough luck and she has this debates back and forth with me but who knows how long um, these things will happen so uh, yeah anyway so Johan's really book that. is called Stolen Focus and another book that he wrote that I absolutely adored was Lost Connections I think that's a great one and Chasing the Scream is his other one a really amazing journalist um, I really hope you got stuff out of this um, we've got an email address if you want to contact us with any information or feedback or whatnot. It's called podcast at thehappypair.ie. Um, so, yeah. And thanks to you. We really appreciate your attention. We genuinely don't take it for granted, particularly on the topic of what we just discussed. So if you made it here, thanks a million. Uh, uh, wishing we- you a wonderful day. Thanks again. Bye. 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 B